This is the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings, who you can add on Snapchat at hstebbings. And I always say add me on Snapchat to see mojito masterclasses, mojito sessions, etc, etc. Obviously always mojitos. But what if we could do it in person? Well, now we can. It's called Sasta Annual 2017, and I want to have mojitos with you there. So if you're down for a mojito session with me and the one and only Jason Lampkin, simply enter the promo code Drinks with Harry. those three words, Drinks with Harry, when you're purchasing your Sasta the tickets and not only will you get 20% off the ticket price but you'll also get a fantastic mojito happy hour with me paid for by the kind bank of mr jason lempkin uh it would be so great to see you there however back to the show today and joining me today i'm thrilled to welcome a leader of the sales industry we often have vps of sales of titan tech companies on the show but who teaches them how to sell who trains the likes of salesforce to be the best well that's the space of john barrows he will not admit to this but he's essentially the godfather of sales with clients including Salesforce, Dropbox, Twilio, LinkedIn, Box, Marketo. The list goes on and on. And I have to say a huge thank you to Michael Cardamone at Accelerprise for making the intro to John's day, without which the interview would not have been possible. And this one really is one to get the pen and paper out on as it's full of really actionable tips and tricks on how to optimize your sales process. So I'm delighted to welcome John Barrows, the godfather of sales. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. John, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. Thank you so much to Michael at Accelerprise for the intro, but thank you, John, for joining me today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Harry. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. Now, let's kick off today by hearing how you came to be the go-to man for SaaS sales consultancy. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's just like anybody in terms of sales in general. I I kind of got in it, into it by default. You know, I got my degree in marketing and uh, realized that wasn't what I wanted to do with my career, or at least I couldn't make enough money doing it. And so, stumbled into sales with DeWalt Power Tools with Black and Decker. It was under the realm of sales, but it was really more event marketing. You know, I drove around giving away free tools to construction workers and having a good time doing that. And then uh, went to Xerox and that's really where I got my sales career started. Really, you know, my real true sales education. And they had a fantastic training program and it was also, you know, talk about selling a commodity, right? So I learned how to take rejection quite a bit. And then about a year and a half after that, didn't like the corporate world of having to spend two years doing this role and two years doing the next and so on. And uh, got into startups with a good friend of mine who had started a company. And I was 23 years old, so I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, we were self-funded and doing outsourced IT services to the SMB market. And so I just went out there and took every training I could. Sandler, Miller, Hyman, Taz, Spin, everything. And, and I came across Basho, which was a training here in Boston that, you know, it was the first training I really liked. And so I used it to help grow Thrive Up. We ended up becoming the fastest growing company in Massachusetts for a few years in a row. And then we ended up selling off to Staples and spent about a year going through that integration. Uh, reminded myself that I'm not a corporate guy. <laughs> I don't like playing politics and I really don't have a filter. So eventually Staples offered me another position, which was a really nice way of firing me. And then um, Basho knocked on the door and said, John, you want to be a trainer? And I said, no, absolutely not. You know, I don't, I don't like trainers. And, you know, cause up until that point in my career, there's only two types of trainers I come across sales trainers specifically. One was either the failed sales professional. Uh, the other was either, it was somebody who was a professional presenter and I really just didn't want to have anything to do with that. But they said, don't worry, you have to use these techniques to sell so you can train. 
accounts. So I like that, joined them, took on some bigger accounts, brought on some bigger ones. And then long story short, they screwed it all up and I took it over. So it went off on my own. And um, now I resell from Jeff Hoffman, who was the original founder of Basho. And I'm training companies like Salesforce, LinkedIn, Box, Dropbox, Saptis, uh, Okta, you name the SaaS company. I mean, with Salesforce is my number one client. It kind of makes hunting in those waters pretty easy. So I've started to dive into that. And, you know, the, the SaaS world I love because they typically lead the charge from an innovation standpoint, obviously, but also from a sales standpoint. And so they really keep me on my toes. I, I have to keep evolving my approach and my strategies to keep up with them because what they were doing last year is not working this year. And so we just got to keep pushing. Now, as you said, Salesforce, number one client, uh, clearly a master of sales. I'm attributing this to you myself. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so you have no choice in that one. But, but you know, you also mentioned the evolution there and the changes in kind of sales patterns. So I wanted to start today on a kind of meta view by discussing the inevitable topic of changes in sales and how you've seen the sales function drastically change over the last few years. How have you seen that evolve? Yeah, I mean, you see a while back, you started to see, you know, the predictable revenue book coming in from Aaron Ross. And, and that's actually what Salesforce developed there. And it was all about the segmentation of roles. Up until that, it was very, you know, one sales rep did a prospecting all the way through negotiation and close. And, and Salesforce really pioneered the whole segmentation of, okay, we have inbound reps, we have outbound reps, appointment setters, and then we have closers. And so I think that has, it was fantastic for scale, but what it did was it really introduced what I think is a lot of, it bred a lot of laziness into sales because, you know, the first entree into sales became sales reps taking inbound leads with, you know, and saying, how many do you want? And with marketing automation and all those things coming in to me, that's not really sales. You know, it's just picking up a phone and saying, how many do you want? And then, you know, graduating to the next level, you see a huge drop off there. But what you see with that model is that marketing automation has started to increase, obviously, in its uh, popularity and effectiveness, and it's creeping further and further into the sales world. So you're seeing marketing automation with business intelligence and now artificial intelligence being later on top of it, really starting to be very accurate with their approach and messaging and taking away a lot of what sales reps used to do. You know, we used to be the ones sending out those template emails and hoping for the best. And when email wasn't really that big of a deal, it, it worked. But now with marketing automation, it's taken over that part of it. And so sales reps are being forced to evolve. Unfortunately, a lot of them aren't, right? Unfortunately, a lot of them are still cranking out template emails, blasting out you know, generic cold calls with generic elevator pitches, asking bant questions, pressing play on demos, and really not thinking about what they're doing. And with the amount of information that's out there, I mean, if you follow Challenger Sale, you know, they talk about by the time that inbound lead hits us, they're already 60 to 70% of the way through the sales process. And so with those two things, marketing automation and consumers having more access, sales reps are, you know, average sales reps are, are a dying breed because they're just getting replaced through technology. People don't want to be sold. They want to be educated. And people are doing more and more of that education online. And so I think one of the things that our job has shifted drastically as sales over the past 15 or so years is not just necessarily educating the client on our products and our services because the information's out there. I think what's changed is 
our job has changed to get them to think and, and to realize that steady state these days is just not a it's not a solution because tomorrow some new app could come out, some new whatever technology could, could come out that could completely erase an industry. You know, and I use the dummy examples like Uber and you know the taxi industry or the you know, Airbnb with the hotel industry. I mean, there's things happening right now that literally next month, next year, it could wipe out an entire industry. And I and I and I also make that to sales. Like there is artificial intelligence coming out right now that could absolutely take the place of what most sales reps do. And it's here now. It's not even something that it's like, oh, maybe in the future this is going to happen. No, you're watching it happen. I'm, I'm too intrigued not to ask this then. So what will be the transition then between a fully automated sales process between a completely AI service and then the sales teams that we have? What do you think will be the catalyst that will transition to that automated service? Well, I think it's all about the type of sale it is and the complexity of the sale. I, I think the more complex the sale is and the larger the sale is, the more people have to be involved. The more transactional the sale, the less. And so I think you're seeing that line move further and further up. And I, I mean, I think there's a big possibility now that, you know, and you're seeing it. I see a lot of blog posts out there from C-level executives saying, hey, I'm never going to hire a sales rep again. What I'm going to do is I'm going to hire customer service people. And so what will happen is, you know, they're going to educate, educate, educate. And then when that client makes that inbound call to say, hey, I need this, it's not going to be a sales rep sitting there saying, hey, how many do you want? And let me try to hit my monthly quota on this. It's going to be a customer service person saying, hey, let me educate you on this. I have no quota here. So I just want to make sure that you get the right solution. And so that is, you know, transactional type sales, dollar figures is moving further and further upstream. But the area that sales reps, I think, can still and will always make a difference is obviously clients don't always know what they need. They think they have this problem or they know they have a certain issue, but they don't know how to address it. And so that's why you see outbound prospecting and sales still, in my opinion, very effective, especially when you're going after mid-market enterprise type clients to reach out to them and say, hey, have you have you heard of this? Have you Again, have you thought about this? And that's why social selling and everything else is so important because it's kind of like the movie Inception. Like I, our job is to get them, you know, plant that seed in their mind about, hey, have you thought about this? And that's why account-based marketing and account-based selling is so hot right now because it's actually taking that thoughtful process to your business saying, hey, this is what I know about you. Here's some information you should be thinking about, you know, and, and as a sales professional, let me educate you and then ask you the right questions to help you realize that there's a much better way of doing something here. So I don't necessarily know if that's ever going to go away. You know, whether we call it sales, whether we call it customer service or whatever. But I think, yeah, like I said, the, the artificial intelligence stuff is creeping up further and further. And if you're not paying attention to it, you will be one of those that get replaced. Can, can I be really bullish here and say, is kind of the introduction of ABM not just a more intellectual academic approach to outbound prospecting? I, I'm going to separate ABM and ABS, like account-based sales and account-based marketing. Like The fact that these are like the hot topics now just drives me nuts because it's, it's not like this is a new thing. It's just because somebody put a new acronym around it doesn't mean it's, you know, it's new. I mean, there's, there's sales coming, the target account selling Taz or Miller Hyman or any of those companies have been doing targeted uh, account based selling for years, account based marketing. I think marketing is finally starting to realize that they've saturated the market so much with so much noise with the broad brush approach to say, Hey, here's, you know, here's a million emails and we're just going to play the numbers game. That numbers game isn't working anymore. I mean, when I was first in sales at my first startup when I was 23, you know, I could get away with just making with, with 
the effort approach in this, you know, I made $400 a week that got me eight meetings a month that got me four proposals that got me two pieces of closed business. And I knew that equation cold. And I just came up with a generic elevator pitch and just blasted through calls. And, you know, and I would triple over opportunities almost didn't matter what I said. And I think marketing was that way for a while, but now it's just, there's so much noise out there that marketing is being forced to be more targeted. And so I think this, this new quote unquote account-based marketing is just a realization that if you aren't tailored to the people that you're reaching out to, the likelihood of them paying attention to you is, is not high anymore because of what they've saturated the market with. Absolutely. I'm, I'm intrigued though then how you see the integration of a sales and a marketing team. Is the marketing team's role to warm up the lead to the 60% of customer knowledge that they have when they enter the sales funnel? Or, or how do you view that integration? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, you talk about right now, um, this is where I see things going, whether I'm right or not, who knows. But, you know, you notice, and I'm going to name a couple of roles here in sales. You get uh, the SDR or the BDR, right? The, the sales rep that calls in and makes the gets the appointment. And then you have the AE, the account executive who goes in and, and deals with that and closes it, right? So there usually you find one SDR to two or three or four AEs, okay? So it's almost like a little pod. Um, what I really believe that should happen at least is that a marketing person should be introduced into that pod. So people are, I think the, the best approach, if I were to start a company these days, is I would create territories or, you know, target account lists or whatever based on the ideal customer profile and say, okay, you know what? Here's one SDR, two AEs, and a marketing rep, and here's your 200 accounts that I want you to get into. And that marketing rep would work strategically with the sales rep, you know, the AE and the SDR to, to crack into very specific accounts. And, you know, obviously do the, the broad-based, hey, we're sending, you know, we're getting all these people on a list and we're going to send them all this information, but then thoughtful stuff to give the sales reps to reach out with. And then as as they go throughout the sales process, information that'll help, you know, trigger certain things um, based on certain stages of the sales process. I mean, you're seeing a lot of that. I'm seeing a lot of that right now with artificial intelligence saying, hey, this is the information you should be sending this person at this point in time at the sales process. Based on what we've learned of your other deals, this piece of content is really effective at this level. And so that's really where I see marketing and sales working together is on the, the strategy for the accounts and taking marketing from you know, being on the fifth floor and sales being on the third floor to having sales and marketing working together in these pods going after targeting and target accounts if the solution is a mid-market to enterprise solution. Uh, in, in terms of uh, customer profiles there, I'm always intrigued because I get a lot of SaaS founders saying to me, wow, we've got several, we've got this, this, and this. And I'm yeah. intrigued as to your approach to customer profiles and how important focus is within customer profiles. Is it possible as a very early stage startup to have several to does it make it harder for a sales team? What is your thought on the kind of the focus around customer profiles? Yeah, I mean, I think focus is the key to anything. I mean, there's, um, you know, I talk a lot about focus and, and time management as it relates to the training that I do. And, you know, people talk about, oh, I'm a good multitasker. You know, if you tell me you're a good multitasker, I'm going to tell you you're very inefficient in what you do, right? Because technically, actually, the brain can't, there's a book called The Myth of Multitasking, and it talks about how the brain can't focus on more than one thing at the same time. Right, it can make your body do a bunch of things at the same time, but it's called what it's doing is called task switching. Right, and it's switching tasks. The problem is, is the more tasks you do, the more time you lose, right? Because you lose time between tasks, and so focus is key in anything. 
Right. And for me, I, I really do believe that, you know, and I went through this as a small business. I mean, we had a bunch of different profiles when I first started Thrive Networks and we were all over the place. And what happened was, and I don't know a business that hasn't gone through this uh, evolution where at first you'll take any business from anybody because it's money. Right. And you're like, screw it. Uh, like we need cash. Um, you want You have a kid. Yep. Uh, let's do it. And what happens is you end up getting a bunch of revenue. Sure. But you end up getting bad revenue. And what ultimately has to happen is as you evolve and realize who your customer profile is, um, you end up having to fire a bunch of clients because you have clients that are just not profitable. And if you don't fire unprofitable customers, you fail as a business. And so I think it's a, it's kind of a chicken, the egg because you have, you don't, you can't really know who your profile is until you sell to a couple of different profiles and you realize who that, who that real profile is that is going to make you the most money, be the most profitable, longest term customers for you. So Unfortunately, I think at first you, you have to cast a little bit of a broader net and try out a bunch of different stuff, but I think you should do it a, a more thoughtful than most do in the sense that I would come up with actual profiles, you know, maybe two or three and test the hypothesis that these are good clients and then be very data driven on the analysis of that to say, okay, how long was the sales cycle? Who had to be engaged? How easy was the sale? If you will, how profitable is it? How much customer service? does it take those type of things so that in short order after split testing um, the different profiles if you will you can start to hone in on them a lot faster than most companies do because I think most a lot of companies are forced to figure out ultimately who their ideal customer profile is because the crappy customers are the ones that are just sucking the life out of the business and and they're being forced to do it I think you should be more proactive with that and just for clarity is a bad revenue revenue that's not optimal in terms of your kind of profit margin yeah, I mean it's profit margins and, and resources. I mean, if you think of if you have a customer support uh, division, and if you have one client who will say say your average deal size is I don't know five thousand dollars a month, but you have one client that'll give you ten thousand dollars a month, and you get enamored with that because holy shit, it's ten thousand dollars a month. But if they are absolutely crushing your help desk, and you know executives are always having to get involved because they're so needy and so you know, demanding of your time. And if you look at the percentage of time you spend on them, it is actually not in proportion to the revenue that they spend. You know, there's other clients that'll give you $500 a month and you never talk to them, but they'll give you $500 a month for the rest of their lives. Those are the ones that you want to look at and say, well, geez, you know, it was easy to sell. They don't bother us. They're super good customers. They're a great referral source and, and we don't have to think too hard about them. Right. So that's where I look at bad revenue is we've had, um, when I first started my CFO, he put a gut check in place for customers because I was the VP of sales and the only one selling and obviously pretty commission based. But he said, I never wanted any one customer to be more than 20% of our revenues because I don't want to be beholden on that customer. Cause what happens is you scale for that customer, you hire for that customer. And then all of a sudden that customer has you by the balls and, and they could all of a sudden go away and you're now screwed. And so I remember our average deal size was $3,500 a month. And for it services back in the day. And I found a client that was going to spend 
spend $50,000 a month with us? And my CFO said, no, I almost, I almost killed him because I was like, dude, it, you know, it's taking me two years to get this They're 50 grand a month. And he's like, nope, absolutely not. Because that will then end up being our business. And he's like, John, if you want to hire the 10 people it's going to take to support that account, and then you want to be the one that manages that account. And then you can be the one that fires all those people when they go away. Okay. Then we can do that. But if you're not willing to do that, then I'm not willing to scale up the extra 10 people that's going to take to support that client. And as much as it hurt, I appreciated the approach because after I left, um, they did start bringing on those accounts. And then when those accounts went away, they were in a hurt locker. So that is an immensely tough decision. I mean, wow, credit to him for, for making it. Though. That's incredible. Um, yeah. I'd love to dive into a quick fire round with you now, Dave. It's yeah, sure. 60 seconds faster. So 60 seconds per statement. How does that sound? Okay. Uh, sounds good. So top down prospecting. What is it and why do you love it? Yeah, well, I, I love it, but I don't. So it's top down is going after the C-suite and saying, hey, you know, here's a solution. Um, who's the best person to speak with and getting that C-suite to refer you down to somebody in the VP level as opposed to going bottom up. I love it because it's a much faster way. Executives tend to know what they need and who the best person is to speak with. But that approach has been uh, watered down quite a bit from some of the other sales training companies out there. I don't want to name any names, but there is a group that advocate blasting out a very simple basic email that says, Hey, here's what we do. Who's the best person? You know, here's a few clients that we work with. Who can I talk to about this? And it's more of a mass blast approach to all the executives. And then they wait for the referral down and that's where they focus their efforts. So the conversion ratios, they don't care enough about. Um, and that has really watered down that approach, but the thoughtful, I was on your 10 K annual report and I saw this about your business and I wanted to talk to you about it. That I still think is viable if you take the right approach, um, because it just gets better conversations and it's bigger picture stuff. And you can always go back upstream if you get referred down, whereas going from the bottom up is brutal. Like the, the seed and grow approach, I, I don't mind it. It's just, I can't tell you how much time I've wasted going bottom up and then reaching a plateau where I just can't get above because I can't get the information I need to sell the real value of the business. 1% every day. What's your motto around this? Just get better every day. This, it's a book from uh, Ken Blanchard. It's called Raving Fans. It was one of the books that I really implemented from a culture standpoint at Thrive Networks. And you know his whole thing is know who you are know what your customer expects of you, make sure that those align and then just get better 1% every day. And the whole idea there is, you know, set the bar at a high but attainable level. And then once you reach that bar, don't throw it up another mountaintop to climb, right? Just get 1% better every single day. Cause if I told you in 50 days right now, you got to be 50% better than you are today. You'd look at me sideways. You'd be like, I'm dude, I'm working my ass off right now. But if I said, Hey, tomorrow, could you be 1% better than you are today? You know, make one more call, do one more thing, whatever that is, then 50 days later, you're 50% better. And so for me, that's how I, I, I look at myself at the end of the day, every day and say, did I, was I better today than I was yesterday? And to me, everything's about continuous improvement, right? Not, I, I can't stand looking backwards. I always look forward. The most common question asked to you by VPs of sales and sales reps. Yeah, well, they're all over the place and it, and it evolves. I think a lot of it has to do right now with millennials and how to get them motivated, you know, get them on the phones because I'm dealing mostly in SaaS and a lot of reps are in this social world and, and also emails and phone has become less and less of, um, of a focal point for them. So I probably, I would, I, I would say that how do I get my reps on the phone? That's the, that's the biggest one I, I get VPs like, cause I'm 40 years old and you know, I grew up old school boiler room style making, like I said, 400 dials and if 
if I was on email, that was like, what the hell are you doing? And so now I, my group as managers are now managing millennials who didn't grow up with a phone. And I think we're having a hard time trying to figure out how to motivate these kids to get on the phone because the response rates aren't that high. And so how do you keep that, that energy going? That's the, probably the biggest one I'm hitting these days. Yeah, no, I'm a millennial and I do not pick up the phone to anyone. So there yep. you go. <laughs> uh, not even my mother. Uh, right. Yeah, not a good thing. Um, but, but okay, final, final quick fire. Do execs need structure? Yes. I, I wrote a post a while back. Um, I think we all need structure, including millennials. But I, I wrote a post a while ago called um, Executives are Like Children. They need structure because there, if there is no – it's the same thing. Executives, clients, um, and sales reps these days need structure. And I don't mean scripts. I mean structure because if you've ever gone on a ride along with a VP or an executive, if there's no structure to that meeting, it takes the VP or the executive literally 30 seconds to take over that meeting. And now you're not in the driver's seat and your value as a sales rep has been diminished. But if you go in with a plan saying, hey, boss, here's the agenda for the meeting. Here's my goals for the meeting. This is how I'm going to intro. And this is what I want to talk about. And then I'm going to hand it over to you. And then I need you to do this and then hand it back to me in these areas. The executive usually sits right in line. Um, that's why I believe every meeting should have an agenda. Every Afterwards, you should send a follow-up email summarizing what the conversation was all about. Because without that, it's just conversations tend to go all over the place. You get on rabbit holes. Uh, you know, It's all over the place. So if you don't have structure, it tends to fall apart. And the last point I'll make on that is millennials. I, what I found with millennials is the days of figuring it out are no no longer. When I was a kid, my mom kicked me out of the house and said, just go, you know, go play. And those days aren't here anymore. Now it's, all right, you go to school from this hour to this hour. Then you go to soccer practice from this hour to this hour. Then you get your iPod for an hour. Then you get to, you know, dinner, whatever. So every moment of our kids' lives are structured. And so when they come out into the workforce and we say, figure it out, they look at us sideways and they can't. But if you give a kid structure and say, here, here's the walls you can play within. And here's some tools to do that. Now go execute on that structure. These kids coming out of school will execute better than my generation ever would. And you said, you said part of that structure was the summary email. And don't worry, we're not mm-hmm. in the quick fire, but, yep. but this is one that a lot of people uh, discuss in this space. So in terms of the summary email, how important are they? Are they always necessary? And what do you have a preferred structure that you found kind of optimal in terms of response rates and conversion? Yeah. I mean, I think the summary email, I just wrote a, a big post on this last, uh, last week, as a matter of fact, it's one of my favorite nuggets and tips in my training. Um, because we have conversations all over the place. Everybody has conversations all day, every day. And I don't know about you, but my memory is total shit. Terrible. And so if you and I have a conversation today, if you're selling to me, for instance, it's not that I'm lying to you. It's just that as soon as we get off this phone, your competition comes and talks to me about something different. Your, my boss comes in and changes my priorities. So I'm over some. So now two weeks later, you could be selling to something that's completely irrelevant at this point. And for you to try to remind me what you, what I told you two weeks ago, I mean, I mean, come on, I barely remember what I said five minutes ago, forget about five days ago. So to summarize the conversation and get it in writing and get me to confirm, first of all, it shows that I'm, uh, I'm in it with you. So the way I tend to do it is after any conversation that has substance to it, you don't have to do it after every conversation, but any conversation that has substance to it, <clears throat> at the end of the conversation, you go, Hey, thanks so much for your time today, Harry. You know, there's some next steps and action items here. Before I go ahead and do all that, though, what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly summarize what I was able to gain from our conversation today. And I'm just going to send you over a quick email. Could you do me a favor? Just email me back to let me know if it's all accurate and if I missed anything. And so you, so I, I have to let you know it's coming because if I don't let you know it's coming, the response rates drop pretty low. But then right after I get off the phone, I, I and this isn't an opportunity for you to write, me to write a book or, you know, reiterate my value proposition or anything like that.
like that. This is purely to confirm what I heard from you. You know, we all talk about active listening, like how do you show active listening? Well, this is a great way to show active listening. So, hey, Harry, thanks for your time today. Below is a brief summary I was able to gain. Could you do me a favor? Email me back to let me know if it's all accurate and if I missed anything. Uh, your current, you know, bullet points, right? Your current situation is this. Your priorities are this. Your timeline is this. The process is this. The next steps are this. Like five, six, seven bullet points with a high focus on timeline and priorities. Because then when you email me back and say that's accurate, now I have something to hold you professionally accountable for what you're telling me. So now two weeks later, when you flake on me, right? So say Friday, you're like, yeah, John, let's follow up on Friday. And Friday comes and goes and lo and behold, you don't show up. Well, then on Monday, instead of touching base and checking in or whatever, I can say, hey, Harry, not sure what happened on Friday. What's the best way to get 10 minutes back on your calendar so you can read reset expectations based on what we both agreed upon here? And right? and it's just do, a, do you go for small time slots as well? 10 minutes, 15 minutes to make it less uh, daunting? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always tell reps, don't sell meetings, right? Because a meeting, there's psychological, there's a ton of psychology that goes into selling. And when I tell you I'd like to meet with you, the number that pops into most people's heads is 60 minutes and waste of time, right? So that's why I quantify what I ask for, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. And it depends on what it is. Like if I actually have a qualification meeting with you, want a qualification meeting with you, then that's for me, that's 30 minutes because I need 30 minutes of your time to, to qualify and answer some questions for you, whatever. But if I'm just, if we had a follow-up date and I want to reset expectations, I just need 10 minutes so we can reset expectations. And it's, I talk a lot about the difference between being direct and being rude. There's a, there's a fine line, but a huge difference. And I think that we need to be more direct in sales. And and I think that summary email is a great way of doing that. For instance, rude is calling me up two weeks later and trying to remind me the, about the conversation that we had. I think that's rude because I don't remember. And, and I, we could have talked about anything, right? Being direct is summarizing that, getting me to confirm it, and then using that to say, John, what changed here? Because if, if something changed, let's just get back on the call. Because But this is what you told me, and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, right? If this is, this is still accurate, I'm going to keep pushing on you. And that's how I can be direct versus rude. If this is inaccurate or if things have changed, let's get back on the phone here. So I think to me, it's, it's been something that I've used throughout the whole sales process that has drastically changed my interaction. Because I believe strongly that most of our products and services have been commoditized in some way shape or form in the mind of the consumer they're they're commoditized whether they are or not really isn't the isn't the discussion i fundamentally believe and know that we can differentiate ourselves based on how we manage the sales process, how, how professional we are, how much value we bring to the table, how structured we are. I've won deals purely based on that and, and how professional I was as I went through compared to another rep who might have had a little bit of a better solution but was a train wreck throughout the whole thing. John, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. As I said, Michael said, Michael Cardamone said, you know, the one person you have to have is John uh, and I'm so, so pleased to have you on the show and so grateful to you for giving up the time today. So thank you so much for joining me absolutely i appreciate you reaching out and uh, tell michael i said hi next time you talk to him and I'd like to say a huge hand to John for giving up his time today to be on the show. Such a fantastic chat. And if you love the show today with John and want to see more from Sasta, then join me at Sasta Annual 2017 for a once-in-a-lifetime chance to combine the wonderful world of SaaS and sales with a mojito happy hour. Now that has to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. What could be better? And all you do is simply enter the promo code Drinks with Harry. those three words, Drinks with Harry, when you're purchasing your Sasta tickets, and you'll get an incredible 20% off the ticket price and a mojito happy 
hour paid for by the bank of Mr. Lemkin. And if you want to follow me on Snapchat, and you can add me on at hstebbings, or you can follow the main man, Mr. Lemkin, on Twitter at JasonLK. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode with Brandon Bruce, co-founder at Cirrus Insight.